Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. Today we want to talk about knowing the God that we worship. If someone asks you, how can I know God? I would suspect that most of the people sitting here in this congregation could give a good evangelical response to that. That we know God by faith in Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. We know the answer as to how to know God. The question mark comes yet to our minds, though. If we know that answer, why are the effects in one's life of knowing God so little dominant among us? Why is there so little joy and liberty and self-mastery? If we know the answer as to how to know God, then why are the marks of knowing God so infrequently found among God's people? That is a question that I want to address not only today but in coming weeks as we think about knowing the God that we worship. The deepest need that we have is not merely to know about God but to know God. A.W. Pink said, An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. Is it possible that one of the reasons that we express so little trust in God, that we serve Him so superficially and worship Him so little, is that although we know enough to get saved, we know about God that much, we have failed yet to come to really know God. We cannot worship, serve, or trust a God that is unknown to us. In the December 1990 issue of Life magazine, the question was emblazoned across the front, Who is God? Maybe you saw it. The editors of Life interviewed 23 people from many walks of life and from all over the world. There was a lot of variety revealed in the answers that they gave to the question, Who is God? The answers came from Buddhists and Baptists, from Muslims and Mormons, Jews and Hindus. In fact, there were some who responded who weren't even sure that there is a supreme being at all. Interviewed for the magazine were Oral Hirschheiser and Bishop Tutu a cook and a taxi driver, a farmer and a church organist, a man dying of leukemia, and another who is struggling with AIDS. 
The results of their compilation of answers to who is God resulted in confusion as to the answer to the question. Indeed, across the top of the page, running through the entire article, were over 140 names for God from many nations and cultures of the world. The implication being that although there were many names, they all referred to the same supreme being. The groping after God and the blindness about God was widely evident, including in the remarks of Roger Rosenblatt, who is an editor at large for life and a columnist who writes for them. His was the last of the articles. He had gone through an experience of his father having a severe heart attack and dying. And as he recounts that sad time in his life, he wrote, The face of my God is a veiled face like my own. Now you see us, now you don't. This is not true of everyone's God. The testimonies here, he means in that article, mine included, suggest a deity customized to individual needs. A deity customized to individual needs. Interesting words. Yet if I and the other witnesses who are strangers to one another were gathered in a room instead of in a magazine, we would know one another by the God each turns to. I've always wondered how my God sees me, judges me, he writes. Whether he finds me generally satisfactory with a few recurrent flaws or so hopelessly unimprovable as to be his puniest laughingstock. He writes further about his God. He will not tolerate the easy emotion or the shabby thought. He has no shabby thoughts of himself, though if one believes the Bible... He has behaved abominably from, time, abominably from time to time. I will never understand, for instance, why in the book of Exodus he kept hardening Pharaoh's heart after delivering the plagues so that Pharaoh would continue, continually renege on his promise to let Moses and his people go. It was God, not Pharaoh, who did the hardening. What was he out to prove? How tough he was? So Mr. Rosenblatt shares with us very transparently his own confusion about his God. Perpetrated in the article, written throughout it in a popular way, was the satanic lie that everything is true and that all truths are equal. The article in Life was a marvelous example of good old American pluralism at its finest, or its worst, depending on how you look at it. However, pluralism, as well illustrated in that article in Life, and the Bible, pluralism and the Bible 
are opponents. The two cannot coexist. Because the Bible says, in opposition to pluralism, that there is only one truth, not many truths. And that this one truth finds its source in the infinite personal God which the Bible reveals. Now certainly life should be congratulated for asking a significant question. But it's sad that its authors largely neglect the one book with the answer to the question, Who is God? And it portrayed their answer as being a theological cafeteria. So as you pass through life, you simply pick up the ideas about God that fit your own characterization of what your God ought to be like. We're going to find, as we go through the decade of the 90s, that will be an increasingly popular way to think of God. There will be an increasing number of people who will believe in God, which they will customize to fit their individual needs. But that's not the God of the Bible. The Bible is not a result of man's probing intuition. It's not the result of man's reflecting on his experiences. The Bible is not the product of the evolution of religious feelings and ideas. Rather, the Bible is God's own self-disclosure. The Bible is God's way of telling us who He is. And that's where we find the answer to this question. In the Bible, God reveals Himself to us. He tells us what He thinks. For all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 What grace and goodness this exposes in God. For there is no knowledge that is greater or more desirable than the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is both practical and relevant. It saves the soul from lostness and enlightens the soul in its darkness. Back in January of 1855, which is before most of us were born, the minister of New Park Street Chapel in England, Southwark, England, said these words to his congregation. His name was C.H. Spurgeon, by the way, and when he said these words, he was only 20 years old. How many of you are older than 20? Would you lift your hand? That's not a hard confession to make, is it? <clears throat> well, here is a man who is younger than all of us who just lifted our hands. But listen to his words about God. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea. 
But I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. Those are the words of a 20-year-old man 140 years ago. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this, Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him, as one who knew nothing of English or of England, leave him to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and the life and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, he writes, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. And so I come back to my point that knowing the God that we worship is the greatest and most important knowledge that we can gain in this world. There are several foundation stones of truth for our study of the God whom we worship. I want to list these merely today. We will talk about them as we work our way through the subject. The first foundation stone is that God is absolutely sovereign over all his creation. Secondly, that this sovereign God can and wills be known. That this God subsists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the unity of his Godhead. That God displays his perfections so that his creatures, whether human or angelic, might worship him. As triune deity, this God provides salvation for sinners. And finally, the purpose or the end of God's revelation and our knowing him is his own glory and our blessing. That we might come to this knowledge means that we will come to trust and obedience, to faith and worship, to prayer and praise, to submission and service.
Packer says, Life must be seen and lived in the light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion. And so knowing God, knowing God is our greatest necessity as well as our highest privilege. Consider with me this morning what this knowledge does for us. Consider with me what this knowledge of God does for us. In the first place, it transforms our relationship to God. It transforms our relationship to God. I refer again to this author, J.I. Packer, and if you don't have the book Knowing God, you ought to get it. As he writes regarding this matter of knowing God, he says that those who know God are characterized four ways. He writes this in four simple propositions. He says, those who know God have great energy for God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. Those who know God have great contentment in God. Think about that. And think about how that can transform your relationship to him. Those who know God have great energy for God. Daniel of old was a man who knew God. And in the midst of a pagan culture that exerted tremendous pressure upon him to compromise and to accommodate his theology and to change his lifestyle, Daniel stood firm. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. And dare to make it known. Daniel dared because he knew God. He had great energy for God. He was a man who knew how to pray. And when it was commanded that no other God should be prayed to but Nebuchadnezzar, not only did Daniel continue to pray three times a day, but he opened the window to his room so everybody could see that he was praying. Great energy for God. Packer says the invariable fruit of true knowledge of God is energy to pray for God's cause. But then convictingly he continues his writing, If, however, there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. In other words, I can measure how much I know my God by how energetic and intense my prayer life is. And if I pray little, what that says is that I really don't know God. It doesn't mean you're not saved through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. 
But it means you don't know God. Those who know God have a great energy for God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. I refer again to Daniel and to the thoughts that this young man had regarding God. In his teen years, in his 20s, he was a man who knew God. He was able to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and teach him that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. Such great thoughts of God filled his mind that he was able to pray like this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. And he prayed, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him, and to them that keep his covenants. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses. The Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. Great thoughts of God come to those who know God. Those who know God show boldness for God. Daniel did. So did Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. As one Sunday school student put it. They were commanded to bow down to this image that Nebuchadnezzar built and they would not bow. And on that great plain over there in Iraq... And we have seen pictures of those planes, haven't we? P-L-A-I-N-S. And we see how flat and barren it is. You put up a statue and command that people bow down to it. And you stand, you're going to stand out. Those men knew it, but they knew God. They said, our God's able to deliver us. They said this to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God is able to deliver us, and even if he doesn't, he'll be honored. Great boldness for God is found in the lives of those who know him. Those who know God have great contentment in him. Peace patrols their souls. Their mind is at rest because it rests upon a God that they know, not just know about. Again, I quote Mr. Packer, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God. And God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on 
forever. Many of us know about God, but sadly in too many of us, there is a lack of evidence that we really know of God. And I put myself in that category. We are able to quote scriptures. We can sign doctrinal statements. We can refer to ancient and worthy creeds of the church. But our lives reflect little of the reality that God exists. If there is a danger in a Sunday school where children are taught of God with published curriculum, if there is a danger in a Christian school or a Christian college or a seminary, the danger is this, that the students will learn facts about God without being confronted with God. And when there is no confrontation with the living God himself, the facts are sterile and produce impotence in the life. Too many of us have studied God as though he were a project of biology. We have dissected him. We have learned the words, the appropriate terms to use. We have theorized about God as though he were some math problem or as though he were a music score. But we haven't known God. When we know God, it transforms our relationship with Him. Secondly, when we know God, it transforms the values of our lives. When we know God, it transforms the values that we live for. And I invite you to open your Bibles to that text, if you've not done so already, in Jeremiah. The text that was read earlier. In these words of Jeremiah, we find three advantages that people may boast in. Wisdom, might, and riches. Indeed, we find here three classes of people that are prone to boasting. Scholars, warriors, or athletes, and financiers. Now, it doesn't say that it's sinful to be a scholar, or a warrior, or an athlete, or to handle money. He doesn't say that at all. But he says, if any man will boast, let him not boast 
in his scholarship. Let him not boast in his prowess. Let him not boast in his wealth. But if anyone will boast, let him boast in this specific thing. Our world today boasts in the first three. Those are the people that are honored and worshipped as heroes, and held up as models to our children. When was the last time you watched a television program that was titled The Lifestyle of the Godly? No, it's The Lifestyle of the Rich and the Famous. If any man will boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Can you understand God? Well, ultimately the answer to that, of course, is no. We can never understand the infinite. But God says we can understand him. In some limited sense, it is possible to gain that understanding. To discern him is what the word means. We can come to discern how God thinks and why God acts the way that he does. We can. And we can also know God. This is not the word for knowing God intellectually. This is not the word for a THD in the Hebrew. This word for knowing God, and I say this with reverence and with holiness, is the same word for a man who knows his wife in the most intimate of relationships in the world. God says if you are going to boast, then boast that you have an intimate and personal knowledge of me. When we know God this way, the values of life are transformed. No longer do we press and push for power and prestige and fame and wealth. Although those may be a part of our lives in the sovereign plan of God, those things do not become the values by which we measure our success. Rather, our success in our boasting is measured by how much we understand of God and how intimately we are acquainted with the infinite. How can we know God? Where do we begin to get this kind of knowledge of God? Let me assert that the answer is not found in the December issue of Life magazine. 
The answer is found in this book. You know that. The Bible. It is possible, I am sorry to say, for us to know the Bible and to not know God. There are people who can quote scripture verses, who can argue theology in its fine points, but who, not, who do not have the knowledge of God that has transformed them in their relationship to him or to other people. They do not have a knowledge of God that has transformed the values of their lives. That is worthless knowledge. Worthless. And God has no respect for it. The kind of knowledge that God says we may rightly boast in is the kind of knowledge that transforms us. The kind of knowledge wherein our theology, the facts which we must begin to know, where those facts are applied to our lives, where we confront the living God as he is. But how do we do that? The first thing that we must do is to acknowledge how small is our knowledge of him. To measure our knowledge not by our understanding of books in the Bible or our ability to outline them or to give theological answers. A knowledge not measured even by our service on behalf of God and how we perform, but a knowledge that is measured by our prayer life and by the habits of our heart. And when we measure our knowledge of God by our prayer life and by the habits of our hearts, there are few of us that will not be brought to humility and repentance before God. We start there. By measuring what our knowledge of God really is and acknowledge, acknowledging how short we are. And then we take the second essential step. <clears throat> it is that we begin to seek God with all of our hearts. To seek God in his word. And to let nothing stand in the way of our knowing God. To make that the issue of our lives. To make that the press of our souls. To know God. When we have taken those two steps, then we can go beyond that. But we can't even start until we first do a real measurement and we acknowledge to God what, what we are, where we are. And we begin then with determination and discipline to seek him. He has promised that if we seek him with all of our hearts, we shall surely find him. Let's pray.
What do you want to say to the Lord? Tell him right now. Lord, measure us and open our eyes and force us to see your measurement. May we not be wise in our own conceits. May we not boast of those things that must surely pass away. Cause us to seek that knowledge that is the greatest and the most necessary. And as we go from here today, set our hearts on this knowledge like it has never been set before. I pray that you will light a fire in my heart and in the hearts of hundreds of these who listen. Light a fire that cannot be quenched. A fire that will warm our souls. Which will bring us to a true and intimate understanding and knowledge of you. Would you stand with me please, our heads bowed. And let's sing, perhaps with a new understanding, this chorus. Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch Him, and say that we love people said.